Howdy folks, welcome to Bad GM's Campaign Build Along. I'm the Bad GM, Wayne Davis, and this is the show where we build an entire campaign for you from scratch that you can run for your group starting tonight. We're building a campaign for Deadlands Classic, so make sure you've got your player's handbook and Marshall's guide handy, because we reference both of those frequently during these build sessions. This week's a build-only show, because my group is set to run whatever we build today on Saturday night. So... We've got a half an hour to fill, a lot of campaign to build. It's late at night. I got a bolt cap monster. Hell, let's build. First, let's recap what we built two weeks ago so we can refresh ourselves about where we are on this game before we start building new stuff. When we started the last session, the group was on the train headed back to Denver to report to Mr. Norwood that they'd failed to save Mr. O'Toole. But after four days in Denver, they had not gotten a response. Their response came later in the day in the form of a letter with Norwood's severed finger in it. They realized he was headed for Sacramento, and they decided to head that way by train. When they got there, they checked with airship pads, found the one Atwell landed at, and found the address he'd listed as a contact. It happened to be the headquarters of Chang Lee's criminal organization. And when they got there, Lee was dead, Norwood was dead, and all of Lee's people were dead. As they got away from the scene, they witnessed what they believed to be Atwell's flying machine flying away and heading north towards Billings, Montana. Now they were in a hurry because it's a race against the clock. So they found a place they could buy an airship. They bought it and took off for Billings, where they intended to meet Amani Lato, see what she had to tell him, and see if she really is off the board or not. They got there, met with her, and they found out she really has walked away from the board. She gave them a house in Wyoming that she says can give them information they can use to figure out who Undertaker is and probably to help them find the still-missing Atwell. However, she also had a job for them, and it involved eliminating some Wendigo that had been terrorizing her cattle. They did the job, they got paid, and they found a place to sleep for the night. We wrapped our build with the group boarding the airship to head off to Wyoming the very next day. Now, for those of you who listened to last week's show, you now know that my group is a board member of Head of Yours, and you also got the identity of Undertaker. If your group is in a different spot than what we've been building, now you have all the names you need to finish off your game. So if anything we're building can help you, by all means, use it. So, let's build. It'll take about a day and a half by air to get to Wyoming, and they'll land outside of town, try to hide the airship. I mean, they can find a barn or something to hide it in, and then make their way into town. At this point, I'm going to leave city details to you. Again, you know what your group is looking for in a town, so set up what you need here. Short of a Saks Fifth Avenue or a $1,000 a plate dinner house, you should be able to put it here. I'd also say no Smith & Robards shop. It's going to be mail order only. The house is a medium-sized house in an area that certainly appears to be a wealthier part of town. The grounds are well manicured, and it would appear that the house and grounds take up about four lots on this side of town. House is two stories, and the windows are closed on this late October day. It's cold, it's overcast, and they will occasionally see snowflakes as they walk along. Needless to say, closed windows are going to limit their ability to enter the house quietly. However, somebody is bound to think about trying to jimmy the back door and get in. It's a simple lock, so make that target number a four. Once the door is open, they come into the kitchen. It's hot in here since the cooking fires are stoked. There's a pot of something cooking in cast iron, and if they check, it's a stew that doesn't appear to have been on there for very long. Now, they can keep watch for people in the house, but it only takes a few minutes to figure out that there are only three people here, two men and a woman. The woman and one of the men are older, while the other man is much younger. 
appears to be their son. They don't seem surprised to see the group here, and you can decide who sees the group first. I'll go with the woman since she's the cook. Her name is Betty, and she makes it clear that she doesn't care if they're here or not because she doesn't do security. She just helps her husband and son keep the place maintained, and if they steal anything, that's, uh, in her opinion, on the moron who never comes here to check on us. She does let them know that the meeting room and his office are in the basement, and she points that door out to them. If the group decides to check out the rest of the house, there are a couple of sitting rooms on this floor and four bedrooms on the second floor. There's some semi-fancy stuff in here, but the stuff in the bedrooms is going to appear to be the personal belongings of the family that lives here. Basements are a rarity out here, mostly because digging one is a mighty big task. This place has a big one, about double the size of the house itself. The stairs lead down to a large conference room. The table would seat at least a dozen very comfortably, and the chairs are upholstered and padded. Again, very, very nice. The walls are lined with several bookshelves, a few cabinets, and a ton of maps covering the wall. Every U.S. state, C.S. state, Deseret, Lost Angels, and all of the territories are detailed, as well as city maps for multiple cities all over the continent. There are notes marked on the maps, but they're coded, and no matter how well a player rolls, you decide what role would work best, they cannot figure out the code. Now, if they roll really well, it could be argued that they understand some of it, but it's a weird combination of ciphers being used, so figuring everything out is going to be just about impossible. If you do want to give them some information, a really good role would give them the fact that most of the western part of the U.S. has been carved up and claimed by various board members. They would also notice that there are 12 groupings of territory listed on the map. However, we know there's only seven board members, so either they missed some board members or there's something else going on here that they don't know about. That's it. That's all the information they're going to get out of this. Checking the file cabinets, they find bills of sales and receipts going back nearly 20 years. If somebody really wanted to take the time, they'd be able to trace every purchase and deal made by the board since the very beginning. And for the record, they do not have the time for that, but they don't know that just yet. And there are way too many records here for them to just pack them away to take them and check out later on. Remember, this is not Dungeons and Dragons. They do not have a bag of holding. Unless, of course, your mad scientist figured out a way to make something like that, then you know what, I'll just leave it up to you. There are actually three offices that take up the other third of the basement. Two of them are fairly small, and they flank the larger office in the middle. Nothing of value in those two smaller offices. There's a stack of stationery, an inkwell, and a pen on the desk with a blotter there to be used when needed. The desk isn't plain, but it isn't nearly as fancy as the one in the meeting room. The group's guess is that the two smaller offices are for the use of other board members if they need to when they're here. Entering the larger office, it's obvious whose office this is. The desk is probably the nicest piece of furniture they've ever seen, with an overstuffed chair behind it. The walls are lined with badges from jurisdictions all over the continent, including the Town Marshal Badge from Triumph, Kansas. For the record, there's also a U.S. Marshal's Badge, a Texas Rangers Badge, a Mexican Federale Badge, and one for the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. That Triumph Badge should draw the group's attention. At this point, give them knowledge checks. The target number is 14, and success means that the character will put together the various clues that I have laid out over time. Mr. Norwood's appearance, the letter from the Undertaker they got in Deadwood, plus the Triumph badge, and they've been able to figure out that Ed Stewart is the Undertaker. 
I laid out the reasoning in my group recap last week, but for those who missed it, here it is. A successful check for the player means that the character can remember seeing the handwriting in the Undertaker letter before. In fact, they'll be able to place it to Triumph. Now, as Gabe noted in my group, there are only two places in Triumph they most likely would have seen any handwriting, the General Store and the Marshal's Office. And for the record, the Marshal's Office is the only place they would have seen a lot of handwriting. Now, obviously, if your group did more in Triumph than mine did, there might be another location or two that you can add to that list, but let's just go with what we've got here. The badge is the kicker. I mean, the group only saw burned up walking dead wearing Ed Stewart's badge and vest. My group never bothered to try to confirm they'd actually killed the walking dead of Stewart. They assumed it was him based on what they saw. So to have that badge hanging on this wall would confirm to that player that Ed Stewart is not only alive, but he's the Undertaker. But you might be saying, what about Norwood? Didn't I link Norwood to Stewart as well? And, and didn't we kill Norwood off in the last game? Um, yes, we did. But let me ask you a question, though. Did the group really check to confirm the body they found was that of Norwood? I mean, at this point, your group's probably going to want an answer from you. So have them make another knowledge check. Give them a target number of eight. Success means that as they comb through their memory of Norwood's dead body, they realize something was off. The eyes. The eyes of the corpse were not the same color as Norwood's eyes. Norwood's were blue. This dude's were green. And now that they think about it, the Norwood that they saw dead was a bit chunkier than the Norwood they've worked with in the past. Now, if they didn't deal with Norwood, scratch all the Norwood references since they really don't apply. Anyway, long story short, they've been taking orders for hits from the head of the board since they got to Denver. If it was Norwood. Lucky them. There's several stacks of papers on the desk, but they are very orderly. One of them is information on each of the other six members of the board, code names, real names, locations, occupations, net worth, the territories they control, and how many insiders the Undertaker has within their organizations. For the record, he's got four inside Amani Lato's group, so that's something they may want to consider as we move forward. Also, he only had one listed for Jonathan O'Toole. If they used Norwood, it was obviously him. If they were using anybody else because they'd already killed O'Toole, well, they're not going to be sure who that insider was. The next stack of papers is a full report on Triumph Kansas from about 10 months ago. That would be shortly before our campaign began and just about the time Ed Stewart was hired as the town marshal. The report details the mayor, all of the businesses being run in and around town, the value of the mines, the value of all the businesses, the intelligence and connections of most of the major players. It's obvious Stewart did his homework before he moved to town. The last stack of papers is the one that should interest this group the most. It's correspondence between Ed Stewart and Brigham Young, and the letters lay out Stewart's plans to take over the board. One of his letters is an offer to Young to either join forces or to agree to let each other operate within their territories without being bothered, unless something large enough to require that sort of attention would happen. In the last letter, dated three weeks ago, Young agreed to join forces with Stewart, who apparently is using the alias Martin Simmons with Young, but he has a concern. Bronson Atwell has gotten to Salt Lake City, and he's been raising a ruckus. He requested Stewart's blessing to deal with Atwell himself before acting on it. However, the group has no clue as to how Stewart responded, until or unless somebody gets creative. Now, remember the stacks of stationery I pointed out in the other two offices? 
Well, there's a stack in here as well with the name Martin Simmons, attorney at law emblazoned across the top. If someone wants to try to figure out a way to find the answer, have them make a smart check with a target of nine. Success means that the following idea occurs to them. They can take the next sheet of stationery from the stack, use a pencil to lightly color across the page, and they can make out some of the words written on the sheet from above it. The argument here is that Stuart probably pulled several sheets of stationery off the stack when he began writing, and he put back whatever he didn't use. Also, if a group member thinks to do this without a roll, go ahead and allow it. Anyway, once they've scribbled, they can make out the following. Insofar as your request, I would suggest we have a way to kill two birds with a single stone. That group of shooters you've been wanting to get your hands on are also looking for Mr. Atwell. Should we be able to get them to Salt Lake, they can take care of our mutual problem, and you can have them taken in to answer for the issues you want them for. Of course, that's just a suggestion, good sir. Just about the time the group gets the chance to absorb the information they've picked up, they hear a voice call out from upstairs. For the record, gentlemen, we've got this house surrounded. If you come out with your hands up, I promise you'll leave this place still breathing. When the group decides to respond, the man will identify himself as Joseph Arnold, the commander of the 6th branch of the Nauvoo Legion. The group knows the Nauvoo Legion. That's the army for the Mormons in Utah. It's up to the group to decide how they want to deal with this, but let me lay out what they're dealing with just so that we're on the same page. If you've got the City of Gloom book, there's 19 Nauvoo Legion soldiers plus the commander, and there's stats for those in that book. If you're not using that book, that's okay. In this case, use the soldier template 19 times, then add a level to each of the traits, thereby increasing the number of dice rolled. That last one, the one we're doing all that leveling for, that's the commander. Insofar as how these men are laid out, the commander and four of his soldiers are at the top of the steps, though they're smart enough to be standing off to the sides of the doorway. The other 15 are split into two groups, seven on the front of the house and eight on the back. Their jobs are, obviously, to keep the group from escaping should they try to shoot their way out. If your group has those tendencies, then by now you know what you need to do. Draw those cards, partner. <laughs> Once the gun battle begins, the three occupants of the house will flee and the Nauvoo will allow them to go. They're not interested in hostages. They just want the group. Also, the men outside will not come inside. Again, their job is to keep the group from slipping away. And since there are no windows or doors on the sides of the house, they would either need to go out the front or the back. Now, that being said, once the group has chosen a direction and exited, the men on either side will work their way around to try to circle them. However, I'm going to assume your group will try to shoot from inside the house at the soldiers. They'll be using cover, I'm sure, so make sure all of the Nauvoo attacks from outside the house are at a minus two penalty because we're going to give them credit for partial cover. It's partial cover, by the way, because even if they're leaning hard against the wall between the windows and emerging to shoot, the house is made of wood with no insulation, so there's always a decent chance a bullet can get through. If the group manages to succeed and kill all of the Nauvoo, they've got a second problem. The local law dogs will be on the scene to try to figure out what the heck just happened. Fortunately for the group, these guys hate the Nauvoo Legion, and especially dislike the fact that they took arm action in their town. They'll arrange for injured group members to see a surgeon, and they won't charge anyone with murder. However, once the injured can safely move, they'll be asked to leave town for the town's protection, of course. Give each member of the group a blue, red, and white chip for their success. And we'll pick this thread up in just a little bit. 
Obviously, if the group fails to take out the Naboo and they die, well, it's game over. You can either have them create new characters and start over, have them create new characters to avenge these characters and pick up here, or you can call it a campaign and move along to something else. I would note for the record that once we've completed this campaign, Season 1 will have a couple of bonus episodes detailing a one-shot I'm going to run for my group before we get into Season 2, and those episodes will be coming in probably three or four weeks. The third possibility is that the group loses, but at least one character is still standing. With that, the remaining members of the Legion come in, take everyone into custody, and take them to a camp just outside of town. Those who are injured see a surgeon. Anyone who took fatal wounds will come back harrowed in 24 hours, so familiarize yourself with those rules and get the player up to speed. The Naboo don't seem surprised by this, and they don't seem to care, so long as the newly undead doesn't cause havoc with them or with their mission. Oh, and for the record, if you have to bring a character back as Harrowed, they have control of the Manitou when they wake up. It's not total control, but it's just enough to keep them in the driver's seat as the campaign continues. Like I said, familiarize yourself with those rules and decide exactly how you want the control to look like. Also, if the player in question has no desire to play a Harrowed, you can always have them create a new character to join the group at this point. Make them a prisoner of the Nauvoo that they caught while they were on their way to Wyoming, and just make sure they've got enough build points to put themselves on nearly equal footing with the characters that lived. Not exactly equal to, but not so far behind that they're going to be useless. And if the player in question doesn't like any of these solutions, then you're either going to have to come up with a good compromise, or that player's just going to have to be out until the campaign ends. Either way, you're ready to move on, so read into the next part and see what the conversations need to look like, then carry on with this scenario. Oh, and any survivors get the chips we detailed a moment ago. Same for those who would come back as harrowed. Okay, so let's back up and go with the thought that the group willingly chooses to surrender. In that case, the Nauvoo will confiscate their weapons once they come upstairs, then lead them to their camp just outside of town. The commander, he'll, he'll be open with them. He'll inform them that they're not going to be harmed. Brother Brigham has requested their appearance in the City of Gloom, and the Legion is to escort them there to ensure that nothing bad happens to them. He'll say something about a deal that Brother Brigham wants to make with them, but he doesn't know anything about it, just that there is a deal. Somebody will go fetch the group's horses so they can ride to Utah, and the group rides with the Legion surrounding them as they go, which is to prevent them from trying to cut and run. But let's be frank, without weapons, they're probably not going anywhere anyway. And if they thought they'd be able to use weapons they'd stashed on their horses, <laughs> they're going to be disappointed. The Legionnaires who got the horses took those weapons as well. Now, if they want to try to cut and run, let them try. Just remember that they have no weapons and the Legion will be riding after them, shooting as they go. If by chance they manage to get away, give them each a couple of white chips and have them decide where they want to go next. You can skip to whatever section of this campaign applies, though we might not have written it up yet, so you're going to have to wait a week. If they don't get away, chances are good they're dead. In that case, no rising is harrowed. They're dead and the campaign ends here. At least that's what it would be for me. If you want to give anyone who wasn't already harrowed a chance to keep going, make them harrowed like we did before. But anybody who was already harrowed and died again is dead. D-E-A dead, dead. I know I didn't spell that right. That's okay. Anyway, the reason for that is there's no double raising in this game. However, let's go with the assumption that the group is going to stick with the Legion and see exactly where this goes. We'll skip forward a few days since there won't be any encounters on the ride to the city. 
At midday, the group rides into the city of Gloom. However, rather than riding all the way through the city, they cut off and ride towards the north of town. After a multiple block ride, they're steered into a large warehouse that's surrounded with armed men. They're uniformed the same as the Legionnaires who are escorting the group, and everybody rides into the warehouse. Once inside, everyone dismounts, and there are seconds there to take the horses to be secured. The commander orders all of his men to disperse, short one guard for each group member. The group is then led towards the rear of the warehouse, where a door leads to what appears to be a conference room or a group room of sorts. It's got a cheap table and chairs, and it's lit with multiple oil lamps. The chair at the head of said table is filled with a very large man. Even though he's seated, the group would estimate he's about six and a half feet tall, probably weighs 300 pounds, and he has a long snow white beard. When he speaks to the group, it's a voice that's so deep it feels like it's rising from the very depths of hell. Gentlemen, my name is Brother Matthias Williams. I've been chosen by Brother Brigham to discuss the terms of his deal with you. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, he's not into small talk. So let's just get straight into the offer, and that's probably what you're going to do as well. Bronson Atwell is camped out on a small compound just north of the city, and Brother Brigham doesn't want to use the Nauvoo Legion there. All Matthias is going to say is reasons. He's not going to expand on it. Maybe he knows. Maybe he doesn't. Let's just say if this dude's a poker player, he's a darn good one because you can't read his face. He will note that the bounty on the group's heads is up to $20,000 each, dead or alive. He'll also note that just about every bounty hunter in the country is now looking for them at this point. So, Brother Brigham has a deal for him. They take care of the Bronson Atwell problem, and the bounty on their heads will be removed once and for all. However, it does come with a caveat. The group will no longer be welcomed in the state of Deseret. There is no negotiating. None. This is a take-it-or-leave-it deal. The group can try to alter the deal, but the only other thing Brother Matthias would even think about agreeing to is that the Legion will escort the group to the city limits, then leave them be to take care of business. Once the deed is done, Commander Arnold will be waiting for them inside the city limits. They are to report to him, and he will confirm that they've accomplished the goal. Once he's confirmed it, the group will be free to go. Oh, and the group will not get their weapons back until they reach the city limits. Again, take it or leave it. If they leave it, they'll be arrested and tried for the murder and the death of 13 fine citizens of Deseret during their last trip to town. Okay, let's be honest. Your group probably didn't kill 13 people, but uh, the church doesn't really seem to care at this point. Long story short, they'll be tried within a couple of days, found guilty, and hung. Again, end of campaign, unless you want to bring them all back as harrowed. But let's be honest. Even if they don't like the deal, your group's going to take it. I mean, Atwell's on their hit list anyway, so the ability to get even with him should really be a no-brainer. Sure, they're going to have the thought that the Legion's going to turn on them. It might be unspoken, or <laughs> they might very well say it out loud. Fine, let them think about it. Let them go with that. I mean, for the record, they're absolutely correct. I mean, you think old brother Brigham's just going to let them walk away? He got the high sign from the Undertaker, so of course he's going to stab him in the back. And if you want to play into that a bit, you can seed what's going on with glances or small comments they pick up from the various soldiers. I mean, let's be honest yet again. The group's going to be on full alert with these dudes anyway. So when the knife turns, they're basically going to be expecting it. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Plus, of course, it is a story trope. So the players will be thinking of it long before the characters would. Once again, there's a good reason why I'm the bad GM. I like my tropes from time to time. 
Anyway, once the deal's done, the horses will be brought back out, the soldiers in the group will mount back up, and they'll make the ride out of town. Once they're at the city limits, the commander gives the order for his men to return the group's weapons. He wishes them luck, then rides over to a cafe, hitches his horse, and grabs a seat at a table. Now, the group could make the decision to cut and run. I mean, at this point, they've got their weapons back, and they could just easily blow this off and move on. And if they want to do it, again, let them. They'll need to run for a couple of days to the north to get as far away from Deseret as they can, but they're not going to be chased down. However, their bounty will increase to $30,000 a head, and things are going to start getting complicated. What that means is, moving forward, every town they go into is going to be on the lookout for them, and between law enforcement and bounty hunters, they're going to get shot at everywhere they go. If you want to be helpful, you can try to express this to your group if you want to, in whatever way you see fit. However, I think your group's going to do the same thing as mine, and that's go ahead and take care of Atwell. Okay, so more to the point, what my group would have done if they hadn't already figured out The Undertaker and all of that. So let's get the group on their ride a half hour north of town, where they'll run into the smallish farm compound of one Bronson Atwell. It's clear for miles around the compound, and the group can make out eight figures on horseback riding around, obviously keeping an eye out for something. The house seems to be a small ranch-style house, which means it's one level. And for the record, Atwell will be inside. The eight riders use the gunslinger template. Atwell uses the Texas Ranger template. You didn't see that one coming, did you? All right, yeah, I guess you did. Once the shooting starts, Atwell starts plugging away from inside the house. Deal with it however they want. They want to blow the house up? Great. Once everything's done, give them each two red and two white chips. They're going to have to ride the half hour back into town where the commander is still drinking coffee and he is reading the paper. He calls for his men and nine of them ride up to ride back out to the house. Of course, he does insist they ride out with him and it should be obvious at this point that the fix is on. But he makes it clear that he has to confirm their actions and he intends to keep his eye on them until it's done. Besides, if they ride out with him, they can just easily head north once they're done. Yes, lay this on thick. And yes, your group's going to be positive at this point what's about to happen. They'll get to the house. The commander dismounts and checks to see that they've done what they said they'd do. And after a moment, he nods and confirms that they've completed their task. At that point, if not earlier, I'm sure your group is going to get the jump on the Legion and start the fight. Run it. And if they do all of this before the commander confirms their actions, give them each a free shot. Because while the Legion was planning on turning on the group, they're not 100% sure when the group's going to turn on them. So if the group takes the advantage on that one, give them each a free shot. Once the commander has confirmed that they completed the task, it's going to be an even start because that's the signal for the ambush to begin. Once things are all said and done, it's two red and two blue chips and the group needs to run north. And from here, the group needs to figure out what's next. Now, your group is probably going to want to head back to Billings, Montana, because they're going to want to let Amani Lato know about those plants inside her organization. So they'll ride that way. I think we'll go without encounters on this trip, because let's face it, the group has had a lot of fights in short order. If by chance someone in the group got injured during either of the combats, have them run into a tribe of friendly natives about an hour outside of town. They will be accepted, they will be healed, and they'll also be fed and allowed to rest before they head off. I want you to work that out, since you'll want to build it according to what your group wants and needs. Let's go ahead and skip ahead to the ride into buildings, or 
more to the point, the ride to the ranch. Now, they're going to see something well before they get there. There is a lot of smoke coming from the direction of the ranch. And when they get about a half a mile out, they're going to see that there are fires still burning there. When they get there, the ranch has been destroyed. There are bodies laying all over the place and livestock have just been wholesale slaughtered. The fires are coming from the barns, which have burned almost all the way to the ground. The main house is smoldering and the other two houses still have smoke coming off of them. As they look around, they don't see a single living being. Just about the time they're ready to call it a day and move on, they notice a figure coming towards them from the north. If they've got a scope or they've got glasses or something, they see the figure of Amani Lato heading their way. She's battered, bloodied, and soot-covered, but she's alive. She explains that Stewart's airship came in about two days ago and started laying waste to the place. She also noted that two of her ranch hands turned on her and began gunning down other men. She took care of them first, then did her best to return fire at the airship. Unfortunately for her, a shot from the ship winged her, and she dragged herself into the house to try to recover. Of course, Stuart wasn't about to let her get away, and somebody from his ship dropped explosives on the house. She had managed to wedge herself into a spot under one of the windows, and she was able to wait it out until the ship flew off. She got out before the fire got down to where she was, and she scurried off towards the fence line before the ship noticed her. Later, she came back and saw the destruction, but she knew Stuart had to believe she was dead, so returning to town wasn't going to be an option. Since she knew she'd sent the group to Wyoming to get the information, she decided she'd wait a couple more days before she made another move, see if the group would come back, and so she went up to that Wendigo cave that they cleaned out for her, and she did a little hunting so she could eat. She's not really worried about what she's going to do next. She's got money stashed away in accounts all over the country under an alias Stuart does not know about, and so she knows she can make herself disappear. But she really wants Stuart dead now. So she's got one last piece of information for him. She tells them that his real base of operations is in Salem, Oregon. So she suggests that that's where she'd go if she was looking to take him out. If the group wants to help her out in any other way, the only other thing she asks for is a horse. And she offers the group $200 for one. She'll note they can buy another one in town. She can't, of course, since she's dead. Once that's done, she will ride off to the east and the group will have their next target. Salem, Oregon. And that's where we'll stop our build session for this week. Next week, we make our way to Salem and we see where we go from there. I wanted to take a moment to thank all the folks who stopped by our table at Archon 45 last weekend. We had a ton of conversations about a ton of different subjects and we made a lot of new friends. In fact, if you are one of those new friends, welcome to the show. We will be heading out for more conventions in the future, so keep listening for more information. Speaking of listening, I'd appreciate it if you'd listen to our other fine show, Role-Playing History. This week, we deep dive Dungeons & Dragons 4th Edition, and we spend quite a bit of time going over the reasons why that game is as controversial as it is within much of the gaming community. Role-Playing History is available wherever you get your podcasts or at our website, badgmproductions.net. All Deadlands classic materials we reference on this show are the trademarked and copyrighted properties of Pinnacle Entertainment Group, and they're used here for entertainment purposes only. If you're interested in buying these or any of their other fine products, check out their website, pegin 
The music we use for this show comes from Pixabay.com. Check them out for all of your royalty-free, license-free music needs. Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along is a production of Bad GM Productions. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash gaming forward slash Bad GM Prod. Twitter at Bad GMP. YouTube, Bad GM Productions. You can email us, badgmproductions at gmail.com. And the website is badgmproductions.net. Okay. So next week, we start the ride to Salem, Oregon, and we see how close to the end of our campaign we can get. But that's next week, partner. Until then, I'm the bad GM Wayne Davis, and I'll see you at the gaming table.